Well, hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am so, so excited. I know I'm always excited, but I'm truly excited because if you are joining me live right now, well, that means we're having a party. If you're listening to this after the fact, well, we are actually recording this live in real time. It's Thursday, August 17th, and today is the show where I tell you all the things that I'm super excited about. Now, why am I doing that? Well, a couple reasons. When I used to work as a sommelier press, people used to ask me that all the time. What are you excited about? What are you drinking right now? What's tickling your fancy? And because I don't work at a restaurant anymore, I do get asked that a lot in the DMs, but I don't get to answer it quite as much. And so I thought, given the fact that, you know, I've been traveling a little bit, I've been doing some fun things, I've been moving around the globe for the last few months post-COVID, I thought I would share some of those really exciting things with you, the things that I am drinking, the things that I'm seeing, the trends that I'm watching. So we're going to be talking about four different things in particular that I'm excited about. This show is going to be formatted just like any other, except that if you're joining me live, it means you get to ask me some questions. I've got Ronnie here with me. She's going to be feeding them to me. So if you have questions, if you have comments, if you're excited about what's been happening this season or last season on the show and want more of it or want a little change. This is also your opportunity to get in front of it because we are wrapping up season two in just a few episodes and it's going to be time for you to get some new shipments. We're going to be talking about some new things. Season three is going to be right behind it. So don't worry, we won't have too much of a lag. I think without any further ado, I am going to go ahead and kick us off into our first segment Like I said, this show is going to be formatted just like any other. So we're going to be talking about all the cool things that are going on in the wine world. All right, my friends, we are talking about what's going on in the wine world. And we're going to start with this. It has come to my attention that the maintenance staff is switching our toilet paper from Charmin to generic. All those opposed to chafing, please say I. That is the vibe that Rob Report is giving these days. Are we switching? Are we downgrading? Here's what's happening. So American Airlines, or as Rob Report is reporting, is downgrading, as they say, from champagne to sparkling wine in business class. What does that mean? Well, that basically just means that they're switching from champagne to Trentadoc, which I have to say, a really interesting word that they're using, switching Maybe pivoting might have been a better word. I don't know. Innovating, opening up the borders. I feel like there were a lot of different word choices we could have used here for this article. Because ultimately, I don't think this is a downgrade. So in business class, if you're flying international and you're trying to enjoy a glass of sparkling wine, it's not going to be champagne anymore. It's going to be Ferrari Trentadoc. I love champagne. I think everyone knows that I love champagne. But I also love sparkling wines from other parts of the world. I think there's a lot of merit and sparkling wines from other parts of the world. And as much as I think champagne is a good thing, I think the fact that we are opening up our doors to other things is amazing, especially given the fact that I actually was just flying international business class from Argentina to the United States. And, you know, not that it was like a bad champagne, but like this is what we were served. If you're watching right now, it was Champagne Ernest Rapineau. It was fine. It was like nothing to write home about. 
But the the article is reporting that they're going to be switching from the the Ferrari Brut, which is 100% Chardonnay made in Trentino. I'm a big fan of this wine. I don't know if you guys have had this wine before. I think the Ferrari wines are fantastic. I see them at great restaurants around the country and around the world. This is actually a wine that I've served at Aspen. I'm a huge fan. To me, this is this is not this is not a downgrade. I think this is a, an improvement in a lot of ways. Honestly, after what I had on that flight, I think the one thing we could talk about on the flights, maybe more so than the actual wine itself is the stemware if you're watching this stream yeah take a peek at that glass not not pretty not ideal <laughs> so I don't know American Airlines if you're around if you're watching this maybe let's talk about your glassware and uh, I, I'm in favor of the switch let's keep it happening let's bring more international sparklings around I think one point I always like to make is the fact that if you're not someone who loves super tart flavors champagne's maybe not your deal Maybe you want something from the new world. Maybe you want something from a warmer climate. Maybe you want something from like California or even Oregon. Champagne is not the end-all be-all. We love champagne, but there are other options out there. On the stemware front, since we're talking about stemware and the fact that it's not great on American Airlines right now, we've got to talk about our girl Taylor Swift, who had a great stemware choice she just wrapped up the Eras tour, I guess leg one of it in LA, and she was seen sashaying out of her concert with a very appropriate glass filled with white wine. So let's take a peek at this video right now. I'm going to show you. This is Taylor. Look at her flipping her hair, doing her thing, walking out with this great glass of white wine. I love that. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. But of course, when I looked at the glass, I was like, you know, I got to figure out what is in this glass. I have to know. So immediately I did a little a little research and found that, of course, we used our blind tasting skills. I looked to see the glass. Color was a little bit on the lighter side. It was a clear-ish wine, so you know, not, not going to be super old. And it wasn't in a burgundy glass. And I feel like our girl Taylor, if it were a Chardonnay or something that deserved a burgundy glass, she would have requested that. It was in a regular all-purpose glass. It might have been a Bordeaux glass. It's kind of hard to see on here. But it looked to me as if it was maybe like a Sauvignon Blanc, maybe Riesling, maybe a Pinot Grigio. And when I Googled to see what wines Taylor Swift enjoys, it turns out those are actually some of her favorites, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc, and Sancerre. So I don't know what was in the glass, but I have to say that it was pretty exciting that after a huge tour that our girl Taylor was drinking the wine. I don't know if we can get on their podcast. I don't know if we can get some more clarity on what's been going on with her wine choices. But Taylor, if you're listening, we're fans. We want to know, what are you drinking? Let's talk about it. If Taylor were drinking a Sauvignon Blanc, it is possible that she might have been drinking the world's most expensive Sauvignon Blanc. Wine Searcher just put out their most expensive Sauvignon Blancs in the world. And I think this list was really, really interesting. The world's most exp expensive Sauvignon Blanc is coming from, drumroll please, right here in Napa Valley. I'll give you a second to guess what it is. Three, two, one. It's maybe a wine that you didn't even know existed because a few years ago, I didn't even know it existed. I have a fun story about this wine. It is the Screaming Eagle Sauvignon Blanc. So it's the white the white screegle, the white beagle, the barking chicken. We have a lot of names for it. When I worked at Press, this is a wine that we actually didn't even have in the list because they didn't distribute it. But I did get the chance to try it there. And it's one of my favorite stories that I'll share with you. I had been working at Press for maybe six, nine months at this point, pretty early on. And Press was a place that a lot of people came into. Winemakers, critics, authors, a lot of wine industry folk, right? 
And so one night, Robert Parker walks in the door and, and, and Robert Parker came into the restaurant with some regularity. And that night I happened to be on the floor kind of alone. He walked right up to me and he, he said, hi, how are you doing? It's good to see you. And I was like, hey, Robert Parker, it's really good to see you too. What's going on? And he said, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I have something I've never tried before. Do you want to come try it with me? And I was like, yes, of course. I want to come try this wine with you, Robert Parker. So we went into the private room where he was going to be having dinner. I went back. He unsheathed the wine. And in front of me was the white Screaming Eagle. I think it was maybe the first vintage because he looked at me and he said, I've never had this before. And I was like, I didn't even know that they made a white Screaming Eagle. So my very first experience during the White Screaming Eagle, and I think my only experience to date was with Robert Parker, which I think is a pretty pretty cool story, right? Like if you're going to drink something with Robert Parker, a rare Sauvignon Blanc might be it. That said, since I'm wondering, I'm guessing some of you are like, how was it? Was it delicious? It was delicious. It was probably the best, the best Sauvignon Blanc I've ever had. Whether it was worth the, the $4,421 price tag that Wine Searcher is saying it is bringing in, I don't know if I go that far. I think there's a few like handbags and other things that I would maybe buy before getting a $4,000 Sauvignon Blanc. But if that's in your budget, I have to say it was pretty darn good. The other wines that were on that list, of course, a, a bunch of Dagonos. You got the, the Puy Fumé for $1,785. This is the Louis Benjamin Didier Dagono Puy Fumé Asteroid. You also have the Dagono Memento Mori for $1,262. The Pavillon Blanc from Margot, Chateau Margot, which of course, you know, one of the, the heralded first gross of Bordeaux. That's coming in at $325. Below that, you've got the Nicolas Barbeau. You've got the Vacheron Sancerre couple more from California, the Lale Vineyards, Georgia, an iconic Sauvignon Blanc for $155. And the list rounds out with Francois Cotat, who I love. Their Sancerre Cuvée Paul, $144, which I will say the Cotat Sancerre is amazing, but you can also get their more entry-level ones for like between $40 and $70. They're very allocated and hard to find. And then last but not least, another California gem, the Melka Macara White for $144. So those two come in at the same price. The one wine that was not on the list that I immediately was like, where is this wine, was the Oprion Blanc. And I, when I Googled it, I was quickly reminded, as some of you may be wondering the same question, where was the Oprion Blanc? The Oprion Blanc is actually, and I didn't know this, it's a Bordeaux Blanc blend. So it's predominantly Semillon. It's over 50% Semillon, the rest Sauvignon Blanc. And it reminded me of another great wine that I was excited about years ago, still excited about, in fact, which is the Rudd Susan's Blanc coming from Mount Beter. I think they still make it. It's super, super small, but they even do it in the Oprion bottle. And it is a blend of Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc. So if, if you're into that kind of wine, crispy but still weighty and kind of waxy and delicious that's one to seek out for sure coming right here from right here in Oakville we are going to wrap up our articles with an update Rob report is updating us that the thieves behind that six hundred thousand dollar LA wine heist they skipped over the California labels in favor of French bottles we talked about this article in our last episode when I was with Molly Green from Saison. We talked about the fact that the wine shop in LA was robbed. It turns out they actually did release what was actually taken from that shop. It was a, a terrible thing that happened. It was that Mission Impossible style thing where the guy came in through the ceiling, took $600,000 worth of wine. It turns out he wasn't super into California wines and 
was probably kind of clued into the wine world because instead of grabbing pricey bottles of Krug champagne, he went for an $800 bottle of Guillaume Solos champagne. So he went for that, the Solos champagne. We went for grower champagne over house champagne. I don't know if it were me. I'm not sure that I would have done that. I like Solos, but I like Krug too. I mean, not that I'd steal wine from a shop, but I thought what was really interesting and they did two particularly notables that the suspects also ran off with a Nebuchadnezzar of Bill Carr Simone Brut Reserve Champagne, an extremely rare 15 liter format. Do y'all know how big a Nebuchadnezzar is? That's like 20 bottles. That's a lot of Bill Carr. So if you happen to be at a party and you see a Nebuchadnezzar of Bill Carr come out, you may want to call the cops because it may be stolen. There are only about eight to 10 of those that make them <laughs> make their way into the United States every single year and, and into the California for that matter. So if you see it out there, you know, just raise an eyebrow. I don't know. I'm not saying that it's stolen, but there's not that many of them in existence. I thought that was really interesting. And I think they're still looking for the suspect. I think there's still a reward. If you happen to know where to find that, please let them know. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, if you will, I have something that I want to talk about besides this, which is Harvest Stomp. This is something that I've been involved with the last couple of years. I love being a part of it. It is a charity auction event that happens, and it's a charity that does a lot of lot of good. One of the best ways to get truly one-of-a-kind experiences, both in wine and in doing things here in Napa Valley or elsewhere, is to go through some of these auctions. And I think Harvest Stomp does a great job of curating some amazing, amazing auction lots. And what's cool is that in addition to the fact that they're holding this event, there's also an e-auction this year. So I wanted to draw your attention to that because this is going to be happening right now. It's August 17th. It's going to be closing August 24th. And there's some really, really amazing lots. And this entire auction supports the Farm Work- Worker Foundation and the Napa Valley Grape Growers. They do amazing work here in Napa Valley. Nothing we do in this wine world happens without our farmers and this organization. Both organizations truly support all of their efforts. So you're going to be supporting a good cause. Let's take a look at this first lot because I think it's pretty incredible. I didn't even know this existed. So Scarecrow apparently did something called Toto's Opium Dream. So if you're familiar with Scarecrow, this is a wine, multi-hundred point wine coming from the J.J. Cone Vineyard in Rutherford. This is a wine that I think a lot of you would love to get your hands on in general, but this is a super, super rare bottle that's going to be up for grabs. This is coming specifically from the Old Men Vines. If you've been ever lucky enough to go see this vineyard, you'll know what I'm talking about. They're like, they're big, they're gnarly, they're kind of crazy. And so this is one of only a few bottles that's ever going to be released and you're getting bottle number one in this auction. So take a peek at this auction. I've, I've linked everything in the description if you're interested in checking it out. This is obviously going to go for quite a bit of money, but there are other lots that I think are you know, going to be a little bit more reasonable. So if you're interested in supporting the cause, I will be there at the actual auction. So if you're there, say a little hello. That is it for our articles section. We're going to be getting into the drinking wine section, which I don't know why I haven't been doing in the first place. I am quite thirsty. If you're drinking with me, On this podcast, that means you're probably drinking the at-large Chardonnay, which is what I'm going to be opening in just a few seconds. If you're not drinking with me, that means you're maybe not a part of the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast wine club. What are you doing with your lives? Get on it. We are having so much fun doing this podcast wine club. And if you're not a member of it, let me tell you a little bit about it. It's pretty great. This is the podcast wine club here. It's $120 plus tax per shipment. It does include shipping though. You're going to get four bottles, all hand selected by me and delivered six times per year. And then you get 
10% off all of your purchases. So there you go. Join us. Have a little fun. When we come back in just a few seconds, I'm going to have the at-large Chardonnay along with a few other surprises. So go grab your wines and I'll see you in a second. This is the part where I get to tell you about all the things that I'm really excited about, of which there are many, including this wine that I have right here in my glass. Cheers, first of all, to all of you. Cheers. I hope you're drinking with me. If you're not and not in a place to be able to drink with me, well, I hope that you pause this and make that happen later. I am drinking, as I said, the at-large Chardonnay. I'm going to show it on the screen right here. And this is a really beautiful project that I was very, very fortunate to come across courtesy of Lara Coffer. She brought it to my attention. I didn't even know this existed. Our friends Keith Emerson and his wife Holly, they are Napa residents here. They are making some beautiful, beautiful wines under their own label. And they're doing a Chardonnay coming from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Now, why is this important? Well, number one, Keith Emerson, if that name rings a bell for you, as it probably should, Keith Emerson is a 100-point winemaker for Vineyard 29 here in St. Helena. But this particular project is coming from a single vineyard. I'm going to show it to you right here. 2021 at-large Chardonnay coming from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And this is actually coming from a single vineyard, the Domaine Lubajac Vineyard. If you're wondering why this wine only says... Oregon and not Willamette Valley. I thought I would call that to your attention. I actually, I asked Holly today, I was like, what is, what's going on with this? Why does it only say Oregon on here? I like, I see that this is from a single vineyard. And she said, oh, she reminded me of something. So obviously Keith is the winemaker at Vineyard 29, which means they are making the wine here in St. Helena. He's got all of his resources right here. So they bring the grapes down and they make the wine here. It's very, very normal. The reason that it says Oregon on the label is because a few years ago, sort of famously, Joe Wagner stirred up a, a bit of a, a pot for the region and was making quite a few wines coming from Oregon that were not being made in Oregon. And so a lot of people got really upset about that. And so a law was passed that if you are to label your wine anything more specific than Oregon, like Willamette Valley, it does actually have to be made in that region. So even though this is only saying Oregon, this is a single vineyard, single cuvee, single block. I think she said even it's only 273 cases and our wine club got it. So why did I include this? Well, because I went to Oregon for the first time about two years ago. And of course, I went up there thinking I'm going to drink all of these great Pinots. I can't wait. This is the land of Pinot Noir. I mean, this is this is why the Willamette Valley got famous. And I left there with a very different observation. Not that the Pinots weren't great. We love the Pinots there. But my observation was that the Chardonnays kind of stole the show. And I think this one in particular sort of makes me remember why I love them so much. So if you're drinking with me, I think the first thing you're going to notice on the nose is that it's very like sea spray and minerally. And even though it's got all these great ripe fruit flavors, there's something a little bit like tart in there too. So, you know, in California, we typically get these really beautiful ripe apples on our Chardonnay noses. Very rarely are we going to get something more tart like lemon, you know, these more like citrusy flavors. You typically get that more in Burgundy in cooler climate regions. What I love so much about Oregon is that you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. You're getting both these like really nice tart flavors and you're also getting a little bit of ripeness. So if you're smelling this and you're having a hard time figuring out like where does this land, that's good. It means it's uniquely Oregon. This is a uniquely Oregon wine. So I think the nose, you know, strikes me first. And then you drink it and you're like, oh, that's got a little everything on there, doesn't it? It's kind of rich, but it's balanced. 
but it's not over the top and it doesn't give you a lot of that creaminess that we sometimes get with like full mallow shards. This is interestingly whole cluster pressed. So you're getting a little bit of that spiciness. It does go into a little bit of French oak, not a lot, only 20% new, 40% once used and then 40% twice used. So you're not getting a lot of that like baking spice, that vanilla. You're just getting a little bit of that, a kiss of it, right? Just to kind of like open it up, brighten it up, just as if you were like seasoning the pot with just a little bit of salt. And then this was, this was bottled in 2021. So this has been in bottles since it's 2023 now. So it's been in bottle for two years. I think this wine is fantastic. And if you're noticing the acidity as I am, you'll feel the urge to keep coming back to it over and over again. I hope y'all are enjoying this as much as I am because I think this is super special. In addition to the fact that I'm super excited about Oregon Chardonnay, as I hope you all are too, I'm also really excited about Oregon Sparkling Wine made from Chardonnay. So obviously a natural progression from that. So Oregon Sparkling Wine I think is is something that I'm going to be paying more attention to. In particular, I was just in Aspen at the Food and Wine Classic doing a whole seminar on the sparkling wines of the world. And I included an Oregon sparkling in there because I think they're so unique and so special. And one of them that I included was the Grand Moraine. This was a Blanc de Blanc, all coming from the Willamette Valley. And something that I think really just embodies, as I was alluding to before, you know, sparkling wine is amazing. And it, it can really show all of its different places as it migrates from region to region. And I think Oregon is really special in that it showcases all the things that we love about Champagne, right? You get all that great acidity, you retain that minerality, but there's something a little bit more, I don't know, textured, weighty, but not ripe. And that's what I really like about it. You know, you get into more California shard, California sparkling wine, and those wines, you know, can have a little bit more ripeness. And I love that. And I love the fact that when you get to more ripeness, you can also lower the dosage. So you get this really bright expression with still super ripe fruit. But with Oregon, I think, again, just like with the Chardonnay I was talking about, you get the best of both worlds. I love that some of you in their comments are commenting that you love this wine. I'm so excited. I can't get enough of this. Dangerous to be doing a live podcast drinking wine. I don't know who thought this was a good idea, but I'm here for it. All right, I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to go to number two thing that I'm super excited about. I wonder if you can guess what it is. I've had a lot of fun roaming the world over the past year or so. And one of the things that I got to do right after Aspen Food and Wine, in fact, was I got to fly to Paris. This was wild. So I got this email and they said, hey, do you want to come to Paris for two days and celebrate World Lambrusco Day? I was like, heck yeah, I do. I love Lambrusco. I have loved Lambrusco for a very long time, but I feel like I don't really know that much about it. So when I got the opportunity to go to Paris, of all places, and go hang out in the Eiffel Tower, which is ridiculous, a whole other whole other conversation, I was blown away by what is happening in the region. So let's talk a little bit about Lambrusco. If you're unfamiliar with Lambrusco, you might you might have seen it before. Lambrusco is typically known as being a slightly sparkling red wine. And I've talked about Lambrusco before because I, I love it with pizza, right? I love this very classic style of Lambrusco. But what I didn't know until I got over there is that there's so many different styles going on. There's so many great ways to make Lambrusco. It does make it just a little bit a little bit overwhelming as a consumer because you can make Lambrusco in a lot of different ways. But I think 
I had some things cleared up for me that I want to share with you. I'm presenting a map right now. So you'll see that Emilia Romagna, if you're looking at Italy, which is which is where Lambrusco is made, if you're looking at Emilia Romagna, it sits to the north, north of Tuscany, south of you know Piemonte. And so Emilia Romagna is actually more known for food than it is for wine. As you zoom into Emilia Romagna, you'll see that Bologna is right there. So that's where you fly into to go to the region. And then Modena is kind of like where it's all happening. You might know Modena from shows like Master of None. You might also know Modena from restaurants like Osteria Francescana, one of the most famous restaurants in the entire world. It was number one in the world's 50 best list. But it's also known for pr- producing wonderful foods like prosciutto di Parma and Parmigiano Reggiano and balsamic of Modena. So, you know, all those great foods. But, you know, a lot of times we forget that there are some great wines. A couple of things on Lambrusco because I... I think I struggled with understanding, like, is Lambrusco a grape? Is it a wine? Is it a region? Okay, Lambrusco is not a grape, but a family of grapes. They have been cultivated in Emilia-Romagna for quite some time. You're going to find several different varieties of Lambrusco, which, by the way, Lambrusco doesn't have to be red. Even though it's all red varietals, it doesn't have to be red. It can be produced in white, in rosé, in a whole family of different colors. And in fact, when I was in Paris, I got to taste all of these different styles. And then when I got to the region a few days after, I tasted 145 different styles of Lambrusco. So that's how you know there's so many different ways to make this. I think one of the other things that I want to clarify is that Lambrusco can be made in all different ways. So if you're out there in the world shopping for Lambrusco, one of the things that took me a second to figure out is the fact that it can be made in the Charmat method, just like Prosecco. It can be made method ancestral, like you would find with Petnat. It can be made in the Champagne method, the traditional method, so you, where you have fermentation in bottle. And so it was, I think, a little confusing for people and for me to sort of look at a region that's producing these these sparkling wines and go, well, how is it made? Like, how do you know? Confusingly, it can be made in lots of different ways. But here's what I think my big takeaway was. When you're talking about the two primary styles of Lambrusco, so Lambrusco di Sorbara. Lambrusco di Sorbara is going to be the grape, right? So this is this is one of those family members of the family of Lambrusco grape. Those are usually made in the lighter style. So it's made in either the white or the pink style. Lambrusco Grasparosa is going to be made in the red style. So if you love that red slightly sweet at times, slightly sparkling frizzante. That's usually Grasparosa. So if you're out in the world looking at a menu and you see Sorbara and you see Grasparosa, well, that's what that means. So that that clarified that for me. One thing that I discovered while I was there, or I should say rediscovered because I was actually familiar with this producer, is the Paltronieri wines. So these have actually been featured on Wine Access before. This is the Lake Lise. This is from my personal stash. But Paltronieri is probably the most exciting producer of Lambrusco right now in the region. When it does come to Wine Access, when it does make a reappearance, this is a wine that you're going to want to definitely check out. And if you're watching right now, you're going to see that this is not your typical red color, right? This is sort of this almost Bill Carr Simone rosé color. This is kind of like orangey-hued pink. And what was so cool about Paltronieri 
is that he really makes these Lambruscos in a dry style and in a style that is a little bit more serious than I think what we're used to seeing in the region. Just take a peek at that color. Look how pretty that is. I also want to draw attention to the fact that Lambrusco can be bottled in lots of different ways. And this one was actually under regular cork, which is kind of crazy. So I just pulled the regular cork in here. There's lots of bubbles here, but it's not super, super bubbly like you would find in a champagne. On the nose, it's, you know, it's super like it's kind of like biscuity, like you would expect from a champagne, but there's also something a little savory underneath it there as well. Hmm. And this is a wine that is actually coming from vines that are 45 years old. When I was in the region tasting at the different wineries, tasting tons of different wines, we went to the Consortio and tasted those 145 wines. I was amazed to see, you know, how how much the style and the quality can change. But I think what stuck out to me the most was that Paltroneri by far was producing some of my favorite wines. This is a wine that I'd be super excited to have with what's in my fridge ready for me to have later tonight, which is pizza. I had pizza last night at a new restaurant in Healdsburg. I guess that could be added in this episode, something I'm excited about, which is Multi Amici. This is a new restaurant in Healdsburg that took over the Campofina space. So if you're if you're coming to Healdsburg, if you're coming to California, check it out. But pizza, to me, Lambrusco is always a pizza wine, right? You can have this with lots of different Italian foods. And certainly, if you're in the region, if you're in Modena, the things that you want to have it with are the great meats, the charcuteries. So if you go there, like you're just going to be inundated with tons and tons of different meats and cheeses, and especially the, you know, the, the Parmigianos, which are delicious. I can't get it up this wine. And even though I swore off charcuterie for like a minute after this trip, I'm kind of ready for it to come back into my life. I don't know about you guys. So if you have the privilege of having some Lambrusco, I would say definitely go to your store, go to your local, like your Dina's Dina's not around anymore, but I'm, when I'm back in Philly, I always go to Debrunner Brothers. That's my favorite. Get some great quality meats and cheeses and like go to town with this. All right. Number three thing that I'm excited about. This will be a quick one. Because we're doing a whole episode on it coming up. So I was just recently in Tuscany in Chianti Classico. And I have to tell you, I think of all the trips that I've had this year, this one, even though it was my third time in Chianti in the last like year and a half, this one just did it for me. I don't know what it was, but this one just did it for me. If you're not drinking Chianti Classico, you're missing out. We're going to be talking to Filippo Bartolata in our next episode, who lives in Tuscany and who I got to know, actually both in Tuscany and on, on our trip to the Eiffel Tower with Lambrusco. But what I'm excited to talk to him about is how far Chianti has come. And I don't know if you've traveled to the region, if you've been drinking Chiantis. I'm talking specifically about Chianti Classico, which is you know the heart of the region where you're going to find the best producers. It's also the ones that are famous for having the black rooster on the label. You'll see the black rooster on the back of the label and on the, the band of the, the actual wine itself. But Chianti Classico, you know, for me is my favorite wine to drink like anytime. And it does so many different things in terms of versatility with different foods, with different styles, with different events, mostly Sangiovese when we're talking about Chianti Classico, but can be blended with lots of other things. For me, Chianti Classico is the pasta wine. So, you know, as much as I love my Lambrusco with pizza, for me, Chianti Classico is what I'm having for pasta night. It's also wine that can be aged. We had a lot of a lot of Chiantis that had some age on them. I also had the great fortune of going to have steak at, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name right now. It'll come to me later. But anyway, we, 
we had steak and panzano. And if you know what I'm, you'll know what I'm talking about. He's like the most famous butcher in the world. But we had steak and panzano and it was so good with Chianti. For me, Chianti Classico is one of the things that I'm most excited about that I'm definitely going to be drinking more of. And I'm going to be drinking more of it because they also just introduced a new classification system. So you're going to be able to get even more quality or at least distinguish the better quality. So you're going to start to see the UGAs in the label. So you're going to start to see things like Greve and Rada and Panzano, these single regions within the region of Chianti Classico actually on the label of the wines. So we've come a long way from our fiascos on the table. We are really, really digging in. And the crazy thing is Chianti's are so, so well-priced. I mean, we're talking anywhere from 15 to 30 bucks for a really good quality Chianti, Chianti Classico. So if you're not as excited about Chianti as I am, it's time to get on the train and it's time to start stocking up because I think this is a wine and a region that even though it, you know, it kind of, it kind of fell for a while, right? I think the straw baskets didn't, did a little bit of a disservice to Chianti. I think it's, I think it's on an upswing. I honestly think this is a region that is putting so much money into marketing and rebranding and making sure that people know that these wines are built to last. They're built to drink. They are not your, you know, your old school grandma's wines. These are serious wines that have sort of a playful nature. One question that I've gotten that I want to answer right now is from Ben, what is your favorite universal glass for primarily reds? And the reason I want to answer that right now is because I'm actually drinking from it. So this is the Gabrielle glass. You'll see the shape here is really simple. They make a higher end one and then more of a mid, more entry level one. This is the entry level one that's about 30 bucks. The entire wine access team uses the Gabrielle glass. We're huge fans of Gabrielle glass. You'll see I was also using the Mark Thomas earlier for my at-large, which I love. These are more expensive. This is not your everyday glass, although I do tend to use fancier glasses for every day. But for my everyday glass, I am all about Gabrielle glass. I love the shape of it. And this is also wine that you can use not only for reds, but also for whites and sparklings. You'll see these at lots of Michelin-starred restaurants across the country. You'll see these at wineries. You'll see them everywhere. They're just a beautiful, beautiful shape, a great weight, and really, really well-made. So things I'm excited about, Gabrielle glass, and then if you want something a little fancier, the Gabrielle Glass higher end as well, but also the Mark Thomas. We're getting to number four. I hope that you're still here because I opened a really special bottle for you guys tonight. And the reason that I did that is this is something that I'm, it's not a new thing that I'm excited about, but it's something that I'm excited about again. I mentioned earlier that I, I used to be the sommelier at Press, which is in St. Helena, known for having the world's largest, deepest collection of Napa Valley wines in the world. And when I was there, I got to open some really, really cool things. I mean, our list went all the way back to the 1950s and 60s. We had deep verticals of all the great producers, Martini, Krug, Diamond Creek, Robert Mondavi, you name it, it was on the list. And we had tanker loads of it. And so every night I was uncorking some amazing, amazing bottles for people like Robert Parker. And I have not really gotten to do that a lot as of late. And I kind of miss it. And the other day I was home with my family and it occurred to me when I was there opening my, my parents' wine fridge that, by the way, I bought for them and started stashing just like little wines in there here and there. And so I found a wine that I had stashed in there and that I kind of forgot that I had stashed in there. And it reminded me that I love collecting wines and I love old wines. And I love that like it doesn't take a lot for you to start just stashing wines away. 
with that in mind, I opened a really fun bottle for you guys for this for this particular podcast. This is not a wine that you're going to find on Wine Access, but I found this wine and I wanted to share it with you guys virtually tonight. I'm just going to show you the glass right now because I think if you were to look at it, you'd be like, that's not that old. That looks pretty red right now. It's in a very small glass, by the way, because this is a little on the older side and I like a smaller glass for older wines under a spyglass because we don't want too much oxygen to come into this wine. This is, any guesses, a 19... 79 Louis Martini Monterosso special selection. I couldn't help myself. I wanted to open something really fun and kind of old because I'm really excited about older wines again. And I'm excited about collecting wines and holding on to wines and making sure that I have enough wines to do that. So when I'm shopping for wines. I'm not just buying one of them. I'm buying multiple of them and I'm keeping them at home. Hey, whoever, who just commented Dario Caccini? Meredith, thank you. When I was talking about those steaks earlier, that's what I was talking about. Dario Caccini's place. Thank you very much. Did not mean to digress, but that was necessary. Okay, so why did I open this wine? Well, as I said, I'm really sort of reinvigorated. I don't get to drink a lot of older wines like I used to. But now that I'm 36 and I've started putting some wines away, I'm going to do more of that because I was reminded how much I love opening older bottles. Now, of course, this is 1979, so maybe you're going to have to wait a little longer to do that. But even wines at 10, 15 years old are really fun to uncork and start having a little bit of fun with. So let's taste this wine. Let's talk about what's going on in this glass. 1979. A stern, dry vintage, wines that are that are typically very muscular. This is coming from the Monterosa Vineyard, and if that is familiar to you, it's probably familiar because, one, it's one of the most famous vineyards in all of California, not just it's in Sonoma, not just Sonoma, but all of California. Some really, really great history associated with this wine. So this is associated with this vineyard, I should say. So this is actually a vineyard that dates all the way back to the 1800s. And just imagine this for a second, right? So this is at about 1,300 feet of elevation on Mount Veeder in what we would now know as Moon Mountain. So this is 1,300 feet above Sonoma Valley. So you're technically on the Sonoma side. It's red volcanic soil. It's the late 1800s. And there is no machines. There's no way of mechanizing, planting a vineyard. So these guys back in the 1800s are climbing up this mountain and planting vines here. I mean, this is an era that is just starting to be exciting for wine, but is quickly then dismantled by prohibition. In 1938, Louis Martini decides to buy the Goldstein Ranch. He renames it the Monterosa Vineyard for these red volcanic soils. He starts to replant it a little bit. Initially, there was a lot of Zinfandel. There was some semi on there. He replants it in part to Cabernet Sauvignon. And today, there's many different varietals that are still planted, but it's 575 acres, only about half of which are planted. And I should also add that he buys this and replants this in like the 1950s, right? So this is still pre-Mondavi Renaissance. This is still in an era where like, we're really post-prohibition and starting to figure out whether or not we're a region that can contend with the big guys. Even more than that, we're still a region that's not really sure if we can make anything more than bulk wine. But for whatever reason, Louis Martini saw something that a lot of other people didn't. And I think these wines really speak to the history and the legacy and the work that the Martinis did. So this is a 1979. It's 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. There is quite a bit of sediment in this wine. I did not decant it, for those of you who are wondering. No decanting necessary. 
On the nose, to me, this is so classically, classically California. And if you're someone that loves noses like this that are a little bit ripe and fruity, but then also have something kind of funky and earthy, they smell like the redwood tanks that a lot of them were using back then, this is a wine that will excite you and is worth hanging on to. So as you're considering whether or not you should drink the bottle or hold the bottle or save the bottle for even a little bit longer, something to consider, right? These noses get really, really, really interesting. And, you know, the wines of today can age, especially coming from California. If you look at the color of this wine, it's still very, very red. I think you would expect it to be a little bit more on, you know, into that bricking side of things, right? 1979, we're not talking about a a spring chicken here. But it's amazing to me, as I take a sip of this wine, how fruity this still is. I mean, we're talking about 40 plus years of age on this wine and it's still so fruity and it still has tannin and it still has structure, but it's got all these other things underneath of it. Something that's, you know, it's kind of smells like the redwood forest. And so as you're considering whether or not you should be aging these wines, that's what you should be thinking about. Do you want some of these forest floor flavors in your wines? The viscosity of this wine is another thing that I just get super, super excited about. And to me, martini wines from yesteryear have this great viscosity it's kind of caramelly. It's kind of nutty. It's kind of earthy. Not everybody loves wines like this. Not, it's not for everyone. But I think for me, this is something that I am reinvigorated about and something I'm going to be thinking about as I'm continuing to build my cellar. For those of you like, I don't know what to do. How do I build a cellar? It's, it's not that hard. I promise you. I started collecting wines in my 20s. And when I say collecting wines, I mean, I bought bottles, I stashed them at my parents' house, and I forgot about them because I moved to California. So we're not talking about a serious collection. We're talking about a tiny little wine fridge that I bought that lives at the beach house now. So we're talking about baby steps. So you can start with the wine fridge. One of the things that I've recently done that I can't believe took me so, so long to do is I actually got a wine storage facility unit. So if you have a lot of wine deliveries that are coming, this is a great way to not only store your wine off-site, but also to make sure that you're not touching it unnecessarily because we all know those nights happen, right? You had a a couple, two glasses, too many glasses of wine. You had just got a little bit excited and then all of a sudden that 2016 Vine Hill Ranch is uncorked and you're like, darn, wish I wouldn't have done that. It happens, it's okay, but... Offsite wine storage facilities are great for that. The other thing that I love about offsite wine storage is a lot of times they will sign for your wine deliveries. One of the big things, big problems that I have is that not everyone's home to sign for my wine deliveries. So that's a really, really big bonus. So as you're thinking about like, how do I collect wines? Baby steps. You don't need anything big. You can really just start with a little wine fridge, a little unit in a wine storage facility, and then just, you know, just build as you go. And then eventually... You realize when you open your cellar that you've got bottles of 19, whatever, 2016 Vine Hill Ranch that are, you know, now 30 years old because you're like, well, I had other things that I could drink, right? So that's sort of the beauty of drinking older wines and collecting and buying with intent, which is something now that in my, in my, I guess, second part of my wine drinking journey, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I have some questions that I would love to go through with you guys. All right. Is Chardonnay a good wine to pair with food or should you drink it on its own? 
Both. D, all of the above. Chardonnay is a great wine to pair with food. You should absolutely pair it if you've got it. But I think it depends on the Chardonnay, right? Chardonnay can be made in a lot of different ways. If I'm drinking a Chardonnay that's got a little bit more oak on it, you know, sometimes, especially these like these bigger California style Chardonnays, like your Kongsgards of the world, your Marcassons, you know, sometimes those wines are just really delicious on their own. I think Chardonnay is a grape that can really run the gamut in terms of style. If I'm drinking something like Chablis, you know, Premier Cru Chablis that doesn't have quite as much oak, I'm definitely running to go get some oysters. But I also love Chardonnay because I feel like it's one of those wines that you can do either with, right? You can drink it by itself or you can have it with food. Red wines, I think, are a little bit different in that way. I think some Cabernets are just a little harder to drink on their own, and I really want some food with that. This one in particular, the at-large, I think you could go either way. I think there's so much beautiful fruit on here that you would not be mad if you didn't have food with it. But I think if I, you know, if I really, really had to have food, I'm going a little bit lighter. I think I'm going like salad with chicken. You know, it's this is a rich wine, but it's not overly rich. It's a wine that doesn't want super, super heavy food. Now, if I were having something like a Kongsgard, a really oaked Chardonnay, I actually would probably go something even bigger. And I've talked about this in the show before, which is I'd probably go with steak. I love Chardonnay and steak. I know it's crazy, but Chardonnay and steak is highly underrated. So great question. Question from Meredith. I've enjoyed the second season. I've learned a lot, but wanted to know if you plan on doing future episodes with non-wine industry guests. Yes, of course. We we had a lot of fun introducing some wine industry guests into the show this year. We're going to be having some more non-wine industry people come back because we love that. I think one of the the real reasons that we decided to do this show was to make wine conversational again. Talk about it with people who maybe don't live and breathe wine the way that we sometimes do. That's really important. People drink wine who don't work in the wine industry. So, yes, of course, we'll be bringing more people on from the wine industry, from outside the wine industry. So, I love that. Another question from Ben: Do you have any go-to benchmark producers for Chianti Classico? I do. I think one of the ones that I I love so so much was Fontodi. That is a a family that that's been doing some amazing things for many many years in the terracotta world and a, a really beautiful property. But I think you know Fantati makes wines that are on the expensive side and then also on the entry level side. So for me, that was one of my most exciting ones. Isole Olena is another wonderful one. I forget exactly where they're located. I think in Rada. So those are two producers that I really really love. Musa says invite JJ Reddick or Greg Popovich to this podcast. Hey, I would love to have either or both on. So if anybody knows them, knows how to get in touch with them, you can always find us in the DMs and help us out with that and connect us. We would love to have them on. You know, there's a lot of people that we would love to have on the podcast that we just don't always know how to get in touch with. You guys, this has been so much fun. I don't know if I'm going to do this again. If you want me to do this again, let me know. But, you know, a live show, just me talking about the things that I'm excited about gets me super jazzed and hopefully got you super jazzed to keep exploring, keep being curious because this is the beauty of wine, right? We can always, always be excited about all the things that are happening in the wine world, whether they're new or new to us. That's why wine is so special. That's what makes me so excited about it. So if you are enjoying this podcast, this is my reminder to you 
that you need to like and subscribe and review this show, especially if you're listening to this. We love reviews. They're super, super helpful. Leave us a comment on YouTube if you're watching it here with us. And, you know, please just give us a a little DM and let us know what you're loving and what you want more of. We're always open to suggestions and love hearing from you guys. So thank you so much to those of you who joined us tonight. This has been so much fun doing our very first live episode. I had a lot of fun putting this together and I hope that I get to do it again soon. All right, you guys, I'll see you soon. Bye.